Welcome, everyone. My name is Ann Coughlin, and I'm a professor here at UVA Law School. I'm really overjoyed to see you and to welcome you to our panel today, which we're calling Wrap on Trial. Um, the panel is part of a larger gathering that's taking place over the two days, today and tomorrow, here in Charlottesville and at UVA. Um, the title of the larger gathering is <coughs> Narrating Rap, Narrating Law, and the gathering is a production of UVA's new Sound Justice Lab. So I wanted to take a couple minutes telling you about our lab and what, what we think it is that brings us to the room. Um, Nomi Dave and Bonnie Gordon are both professors of music, and I am happy to join them as one of the co-directors of the Sound Justice Lab. Uh, we've been collaborating for many years. We've been focusing on gender justice issues and on an array of anti-racist initiatives, both here at the University of Virginia and in Charlottesville, and, and, and at times uh, the county and the state of Virginia. Um, so we thought it would be really fun, interesting, uh, productive to see if we could get some grant money to support some of our work. And so we started looking around for pots of money at UVA and so forth where we could submit proposals. And we heard that UVA's Democracy Institute was funding what are called democracy labs. Uh, the, the Democracy Institute has now been folded into and is part of the Karsh Institute. So I want to be very clear that we are grateful to the Karsh Institute as well as to the Democracy Institute. So we hear, oh my goodness, there's this thing called a democracy lab. That sounds really cool. Let's go ahead and apply to be one of those. Um, and so then we had to do a bunch of paperwork, and my own students will know how obsessed I am with the meaning of words. I'm always fussing at them, like, look in the dictionary. What does this word mean? Um, and, and so forth before you speak. So I was driving everyone crazy because I kept obsessing over this word lab. Like, what is a lab? And we had to persuade the people with the pots of money why they should give money to us a lab. And I'm looking around at the three of us thinking, I'm not sure what that means. Um, so I look in the dictionary and I discover that lab is a room or building equipped for scientific experiments or for the manufacture of drugs or chemicals. <laughs> right? So I'm kind of like, whoa, you know, how is this all going to work out? Um, we've got this proposal and these serious people that are going to read it. So finally, after quite a bit of obsessing, um, Bonnie's husband, who I don't think is here, so I get to tell this story, um, he's an environmental scientist with a special interest in global biogeochemistry. So, you know, he's sort of the, the, the scientist that we consulted. And he said, I think you should stop agonizing and just ask yourselves the following question. What happens when you mix together two musicians and a lawyer? Right? What does the resulting, I'm going to use the word, alchemical compound look like? You know, what exactly does this compound of the three of you look like? And then since you're not inert, but endowed with consciousness and voices, um, what do you sound like? And so, so today, uh, my, my, my feeling is that I'd like to say this is our coming out party. This is the first sort of formal event that we've had. The lab just went live this fall. Um, this is what we look like. This is what we hope to look like. This is what you look like. But that's our agenda, is to bring folks like you together in a space uh, to experiment, talking to each other about difficult social justice questions. Um, so I wanted to just say a couple more things. 
Um, the larger questions that our lab focuses on include which voices does our law valorize? Which voices does it silence? Which voices does it villainize and even punish? Um, what happens to our law, to the political process, yes, to the demo democratic process, to institutional arrangements when we are inattentive to or omit the voices of people of color, of women, of indigenous folks, of our LGBTQ companions. Um, we believe, that is Bonnie and Nomi and I, believe that those voices go somewhere. And our agenda includes listening, looking for them, finding them, and then amplifying them, get out, getting ourselves out of the way and amplifying the voices of, of others. Um, I'm on the verge of turning things over to our wonderful moderators, but I'm just gonna ask you to bear with me for a couple more minutes. Um, first, of course, I wanna say a word of thanks to our generous co-sponsors. They include the University of Virginia School of Law, uh, the Center for the Study of Race and Law, the Black Law Students Association, the Carter G. Woodston Institute, the Department of Sociology, the Department of Music, and we also wanna give a very special word of thanks to the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, which will be hosting our creative workshops and, and uh, hip hop showcase tomorrow evening. We encourage you to, to join us for that as well. And then I also wanted to pause and give a really warm welcome to some folks who've traveled here from out of town to participate and to uh, 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 share their voices with us as parts of our gathering. So we have with us Andrea Dennis and Eric Nielsen. They are the authors of the award-winning book, Rap on Trial. Uh, we shamelessly stole the title of their book for this panel, and they've been great not to, 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 to make any fuss about that. Um, Andrea is a professor of law at the University of Georgia, and Eric is a professor of liberal, liberal arts at the University of Richmond. We also have with us Mickey Fax, who is a master MC. He's the founder and the dean of students at Pendulum Inc., which is a school of hip hop lyricism that was founded in 2021, where he offers master classes in lyricism and practical skills. He's gonna be leading the creative workshops tomorrow, which is really cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we also have with us Anthony Kwame Harrison, who drove here from Virginia Tech. And we're just so grateful to you for spending those hours on the road. Um, he is the Edward S. Diggs Professor in Humanities and Professor of Sociology. He also has a joint appointment in Africana Studies at Virginia Tech. Um, Kristen Henning comes to us from, there she is, um, from, from Washington, D.C. She is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at the Georgetown Law School. We have with us, we're terribly excited to welcome Corey Miles, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Africana Studies Part studies program at Tulane. He has a book forthcoming. I urge you to Google Corey Miles and, and check out the new book. Um, we also have with us Angelique Phipps. She is a public relations expert and a brand strategist. She serves clients in a whole array of industries and her special focus is on social justice communication. So all of these folks are in the house and we're just delighted to have you here. Now I have the great pleasure of introducing our two moderators who gave generously of their time to be here. Um, they are Kim Ford-Mazrui and Keegan Hudson. 
Um, Kim Ford Mazrui is a professor of law here at the University of Virginia School of Law. He is also the director of the Center for the Study of Race and Law. His scholarship focuses on equal protection, especially including race and sexual orientation. He has a very um, distinguished bio, and again, I encourage you to check it out online um, and to get to know more about Kim and Kim's work. Um, I'm also delighted that Keegan Hudson uh, agreed to join us as a moderator. He is a second year student at the law school and he is the president of the Black Law Students Association here. Before coming to UVA, he served as, he served in the office of South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn as staff assistant to the majority whip. He graduated cum laude from Alcorn State University in 2020, and I have to especially point out that he played football there, um, and, and which is an, an incredible uh, accomplishment. During his studies as an undergraduate, he also served as a legislative intern for the House Committee on Homeland Security and the Congressional Black Caucus. So I'm now gonna put things in the hands of uh, Kim and Keegan, and they are gonna take it away. Uh, th thank you, Anne, and thank you for uh, including us in this uh, really exciting and important uh, discussion. So I'll just tell you kind of the format. Um, uh, Keegan and I are just going to share the moderating um, duties, and we will go in the, the speakers will go in the order that they're here, uh, Mac Phipps, uh, Daryl Brown, uh, Molly Conger, and Eden Heilman, and we'll introduce each one briefly because you do have their bios. Uh, before they speak. And then um, when each of them has spoken, we will open up to questions. So please, uh, please get ready to ask questions as uh, when we get to that time. So take it away, Keegan. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, professors, for the wonderful introductions. Uh, and I guess I'll start with introducing our first panelist for today. Our first panelist is Mr. Mac Fitz, a rapper songwriter from New Orleans, Louisiana, best known for his work with No Limit Records. His 1998 album, Shell Shocked, reached number 11 on the Billboard 200 and number four on the top hip hop charts. Then in 2001, Mr. Phipps was wrongfully convicted of manslaughter after an individual was killed at one of his shows. The prosecution relied heavily on Mac's lyrics as evidence. Still, he dedicated his time to uplifting his peers while incarcerated. He was even given a lifetime achievement award for his service. After serving 21 years, Mac was finally granted clemency. These days, while still seeking full exoneration, he spends time mentoring and creating music. This year, he's released five singles and has an EP upcoming October 31st mm -hmm. called Son of the City. Without further ado, Mr. Mac Phipps. So, um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is actually McKinley Joseph Phipps Jr and um, more commonly known as Mac Phipps. Um, just to tell y'all a little bit about me, y'all can hear me well? Y'all good? All right, so um, I grew up in New Orleans, born and raised. Um, I come from a family of six. I'm the oldest and uh, my parents have been together now for like 46 years. And um, they were both artists, they were visual artists. And I remember them listening to a lot of music in the house when I was a kid. I think at around seven years old, I fell in love with this thing called hip hop. Um, it just spoke to me, it resonated with me, and um, I began writing song lyrics when I was a kid, and I knew at seven years old what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I know that sounds weird, 
but I really knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I started on this journey, um, letting anybody who would listen to me hear me. And um, I eventually landed a record deal in 1988 when I was about 11 years old. And I met a guy whom now is a legend. His name is Manny Fresh. And he produced my first record. And um, I released it, I think, at 12, like some sometime in between uh, the summer of after seventh grade. And um, it was exciting. I loved it. And it was something that kept me out of trouble, you know, and uh, kept me away from doing some of the things that many of my friends were doing in the streets. And then at the time, there were, um, East Coast uh, was my heaviest hip hop influence. I was influenced by artists like Rakim, who to this day I credit for being my very first professor. If that makes any sense, Rakim was able to accomplish what my teachers couldn't accomplish, and that was to get me to read. And I excelled at English and literature because I would listen to his songs and the things he would say, and it would make me go get to encyclopedias. You know, we didn't have Google back then, y'all. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have phones, so I used to go to the library so I can read about the people and places that he mentioned in his songs. And um, I became a straight-A student because of that. And I think um, back then you had a lot of different artists were out. You had a lot of, um, at the turn of, the late 80s, early 90s, you had um, hip hop was, was, was taking its form in different regions. You had artists from the West Coast that were more of the quote unquote gangster style. You had conscious MCs, you had um, battle rappers, and I considered myself a battle rapper. I grew up loving, you know, to hear the rappers go at it and prove who was more dominant, who was better. And so that's, that's sort of the, uh, the vein that shaped and formed my style. My daddy was a um, Vietnam veteran, so with him, I used to watch a lot of military movies, and I was always fascinated with you know, the military, the camouflage, and the camaraderie of the soldiers. So that was my thing. And you know, in my family, everybody thought I was going to the military because I loved the military. I mean, well, I did. I joined the No Limit Army, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> You know, Master P even called himself the Colonel, for those who know. And um, it, was, it was something that just spoke to me. And so around late 90s is when I met this guy, Master P. And um, while his style of hip hop was totally different from what I, I enjoyed, you know, I, I liked more conscious lyricism. It was something about the conversation I had with him that just, he had a way of making you believe that this is about to be bigger than life, right? So I signed with him and um, within a couple months, I was making more money than I had ever made in my life. And um, at 20, I was able to buy my parents a home um, and everything seemed you know, great. I traveled around the world with Snoop Dogg. We went on tour like all over Europe. I've been to like 20 different countries and everything just seemed to be going well. And one night I came from a, um, a concert and my mother, I came from off tour actually, and I had promised my mother that I would be at this event she was having at a nightclub in a place outside of New Orleans called St. Tammany. Yeah. So before we get in, before I get into the night, 
I want to just give y'all a little bit about St. Tammany. Uh, St. Tammany, uh, the city in St. Tammany Parish was called Slidell. And at that time, a man named David Duke, has anybody ever heard of David Duke? All right, David Duke was actually the chairman of the Republican Committee in St. Tammany at that time. It was a very conservative parish um, and just straightforward. They didn't want, they didn't want many blacks, particularly from New Orleans in that area. So this was the mindset of that particular parish. And um, a lot of it, that parish was formed out of what was called the white flight in the, um, back in the days in New Orleans when a lot of people uh, from a lot of whites from New Orleans started to move outside of the city because the city was being heavily populated with blacks. So this is the backdrop on which all of this happened. And so I went to this club and um, around midnight, a little past midnight, a fight broke out on the dance floor and um, a shot was fired. And I think about 45 minutes to an hour later, detectives was at my house. And um, <coughs> they surrounded the house. They pulled me out and I was arrested. I was put under arrest because witnesses had said they'd seen me with a gun. And that they'd seen me, ultimately, they'd seen me shoot someone. So I went to the interrogation room, I talked to the detectives, and at the time, the person who was shot was still alive. And the whole while I was being questioned, I was secretly and quietly praying that the person who was shot would live, because I felt if he lived, then he would be able to tell them who shot him, right? Well, I think halfway through the questioning, someone came, whispered to the detective, and then he turned to me and he said, "This." Um, investigation has shifted from an aggravated assault to a murder because the person had lost their life. And I remember when he said that, I just felt an overwhelming sense of fear because I knew that from that point on, my life was gonna change. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking about everything that I had done up until that point in my life because I think subconsciously, I just knew that this would be the last day that I would see that house that I bought. And so they took me from there. They did some stuff with my hands, with fingerprints. I was booked as a fugitive, and then I was brought to the parish jail. While at the parish jail, I remember walking on the tear, the tears that they have, and I remember just, I was in a state of shock for about a week, because I really didn't, I couldn't fathom what was happening, you know? And um, when you're in situations like that, it makes you question your whole sense of, of morale. It makes you question even what you believe in, because it's like, how could this happen when I know that I didn't do anything wrong, right? Well, I was indicted about a week or so later. The guy who actually did it went to the detectives 
about 10 days after my arrest. And he told them he did it. He told them why he did it. I got excited, of course, because I thought that this was my way out. I was going to see the streets again. At my bond hearing, the prosecutor said, we have reason to believe that this man was compensated for his confession. Now, I want to put that in perspective. They didn't say that I paid him to kill anyone. They said I paid him to confess to a crime that would send him to prison for the rest of his life. And I want you young people that's in law school to think about how ridiculous that sounds. What can you pay a man to go spend the rest of his life in prison? But this was the prosecutor's argument. When we got to trial, they didn't have a credible witness. They didn't have any murder weapon. They didn't have anything that could substantially tie me to this crime. So the only thing they felt they could use, I mean, I had no criminal history. I was gainfully employed. So all they could use was my songs. So they went back to those songs. And I had one song in particular called Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm the fool who wrote a song called Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. But let me tell you about Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. Remember I told you my dad was a military guy, right? For those of you who are familiar with military cadences, there is one that says something to the effect, murder, 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 kill, 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 kill. Well, I remember that from a kid. And I took that and I created a chorus and then I made what I felt was one of the best battle raps I ever wrote. And I put it to it. And it was just my way of expressing my dominance over other MCs, if you know about hip hop, right? But they conveniently used it um, to, to tell the jury that this guy is capable of that type of mindset and therefore is capable of this crime. They took another song that I used called Shell Shock in which I make a reference to my military father and his love for his children. I said, he gave me his name, he gave me the game and if you F with me, he'll put a bullet in your brain. Well, the prosecutor said they took both of those songs they tied them together and made them one statement to the jury. They said, this young man says, murder, murder, kill, kill. If you F with me, I'll put a bullet in your brain. That is not what I said. But for them, this was convenient. The jury that was handpicked and selected were already of the mindset of a majority of the people of that parish. They were predominantly um, over 40. They were all white. And 
during the voir dire, there were certain questions that were asked, and um, they asked them, like, how do you rate the police? And everybody who was like, I think the police is doing an excellent job. They're perfect. I mean, if they, you know, if they, one lady even said, and I have to use my Southern drawl to say this, well, if he's been arrested, then he had to have done something. That's what she said. There was another guy who they were asking. He was a professor from Tulane University. He sat there reading a book. And they said, do you have a problem sending someone to prison for life? He said, well, if y'all want me to send someone to prison for life, you better have some substantial evidence and be able to prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt if you're talking about something as serious as a life sentence. Y'all know what they did with him. Got him out of there. We don't want anyone that can think. We don't want anyone that will use their own mind. So in the end, I listened to the deliberation for hours, and I can hear two women shouting in the deliberation room. And what I can hear from sitting at that table was they were yelling, this is ridiculous. This makes no sense. I didn't know what was going on in the deliberation room, but when the jurors walked out, I saw two women crying, and I knew right there that my fate had been sealed. So they walked out, and I remember when they read the guilty verdict, I just dropped and I cried. Like I held, I, had, I hadn't cried in a year and nine months because being in, in jail, you know, you have to maintain a tough image, you know, because things happen and you have to be ready to protect yourself at all times. So I couldn't show any fear. I was scared to death in that place, but I couldn't show no one. But when they read that guilty verdict, I just dropped my head on the table and I cried. I cried for all those months that I was in that place. And I remember just feeling numb and as we talked about earlier, I was living two realities at one time, if this makes sense. I was the person actually going through this, and I was also a person who was watching the person going through this because I had to emotionally detach myself from it in order to effectively assist my attorneys in helping me get out of prison. And it was very difficult because no matter how much I tried to look at it from a legal standpoint, it was me. You know, I had to look at my parents when they came to visit me and we all were pretending. They were pretending for me that everything was okay because they didn't want me to worry. And of course I pretended for them because I didn't want them to worry. And then I met my wife and I started pretending for her. I didn't want her to worry. And in the end, what I learned was that if we all just start wanting for others what we want for ourselves, this type of thing wouldn't happen. If those folks who were sitting in that jury would have saw me as their son 
or would have saw me as their neighbor or part of their community, then I think that they would have viewed this from a different lens, if that makes sense. But that's not what happened. And as a result, I spent 21 years of my life in prison. And I don't feel sorry for myself. I made myself two promises when I got in that place. Well, I, I prayed to, you know what I prayed to, and I asked for two things. I said, number one, protect me from myself because I don't know what I'm capable of. I don't know where fear can bring you because I was scared to death. And number two, I said, don't let me become black hearted. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be mad and angry because I see where anger takes a person. I don't like the way anger feels. I don't know about y'all. But in prison, you see things that you want to forget, but you can't. And even today, I'm out. I enjoy being free. Matter of fact, I think I, pre I have a great I can't speak for no one else, but I have a great appreciation for everything, even the smallest things. But there are times where I find myself remembering things that brings me back to a different place. So I think that's it. Thank you all for listening. <clears throat> wow, thank you very much for that uh, powerful testimony. Um, so this is a law school, so um, how, how does or how should the courts deal with the, the kind of evidence that was uh, used against uh, Mr. Phipps? Uh, and we have our own Professor Daryl Brown to speak to that, and uh, again, in the interest of time, we'll keep it short. I'll just mention his areas of teaching and scholarship include uh, criminal law, criminal uh, procedure, uh, and evidence, and he's uh, published a long list of articles. He's also one of our graduates, by the way, uh, but he's also known for his uh, outstanding book, uh, Free Market Criminal Justice, How Democracy and Laissez-Faire <coughs> Undermine the Rule of Law. And by the way, the speakers should feel free to either speak from where they're sitting or, or come to the podium. Um, so thank you, Kim. Really not at all, uh, because you haven't learned that the main event goes last and the warm-up act goes first. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm supposed to follow Mr. Phipps. Uh, I've been outclassed before in public speaking in many other forums, but this is, this is the worst. <laughs> Uh, uh, so I'm going to talk to you about the evidence rules. <laughs> That's what I want to know about. <laughs> Which even my evidence students don't want to hear me talk about sometimes. Um, so one response that legislatures in a few jurisdictions, in the three states at least, and the uh, Congress, uh, have proposed to this misuse of, of rap lyrics and really artistic expression more generally um, is to 
depending on what the proposal is or what their approach is, to just prohibit altogether the use of artistic expression, rap lyrics and otherwise, um, or to regulate it under the evidence rules in ways that make it less likely to be used by prosecutors and more correctly and appropriately to be used by prosecutors. So I just want to describe um, to you a couple of these bills. There's basically three different versions of how legislators are approaching this problem uh, right now. And California has actually uh, passed their statute. And so we'll see that in action um, soon. I'll talk about the New Jersey bill first because it's the kind of the strongest version of this kind of proposal to regulate the misuse uh, uh, of, of um, hip hop lyrics and other artistic expression. All of these bills define artistic expression fairly broadly. Many of them are quite explicit that the use of hip hop and rap lyrics are the motivation for these uh, proposals, but they all defined artistic creative expression much more um, broadly. Words, sounds, movements, genres, um, visual arts, poetry, literature, on and on. Um, so what New Jersey does is just deem this kind of artistic expression not relevant to uh, anything, just as a matter of law or as a matter of the evidence rules. So you don't need to know much about the evidence rules, except that the evidence rules say something sensible like any evidence that any party introduces should be relevant. It should have something to do with the case that, and the questions as to what the case is about. Um, and so relevance is really easy and broad and generous. Um, so things that are kind of marginally relevant can be introduced because it might be useful to the jury. And this proposal would just add a blanket exception to that and say, regardless of anything else, regardless of how relevant they might seem, artistic expressions are just deemed to be not relevant, period. Really strong rule. Um, there's a second rule. Um, in which they do effectively the same thing for the evidence aficionados out there, right? This is the relevance prohibition would be added to rule 401. In rule 404, they basically just say the same thing again and say you really can't use it even for this particular purpose to show the various things that are permitted to be used, permitted to be shown by rule 404B evidence. But the basic approach is just to outlaw this kind of, of evidence altogether, this form of expression as evidence uh, they do the same thing really again in a third rule and the hearsay rule, um, right? So if they're introducing someone else's statements out of court for the truth that that person seemed to have asserted in their statement, that would be hearsay. There are lots of hearsay exceptions, um, but the, the New Jersey proposal would basically just say you can't introduce the artistic expression as hearsay either. I think just prohibiting it as relevant evidence altogether accomplishes the job, but they do the, basically the same thing um, three different ways. Um, so I'll just notice that, I'll note that this applies only in this proposal to criminal cases with respect to criminal defendants. And so that doesn't apply in civil cases, doesn't apply when one private person sues another. Um, and it doesn't apply with respect to victims' expressions in criminal cases, so it's conceivable, right, that a, a victim who's a hip-hop artist who has other creative expression, right, might have that used against them. You can imagine a scenario where the 
defendant um, is trying to portray the victim as the aggressor and they're using the rap lyrics against them, that use is not prohibited um, because again, the prohibition on rap hip hop lyrics as relevant evidence is only with respect to the criminal defendants, not in, not in civil cases and only with respect to the defendant's expression. Um, so in that sense, it's targeted for these high profile cases in which prosecutors have used rap lyrics against rap artists to prosecute rap artists, right? But potentially there's a gap or a problem there of, of denying artistic expression or artists of all types, right? The protection of this kind of limitation on rap lyrics when it could be used against them to undermine the prosecution of someone who's harmed them. Um, I also wondered, just sort of parenthetically, right, what might happen in criminal copyright prosecutions if a rap lyrics artist is uh, lyrics and artistic expression, anyone's artistic expression, is stolen and used for profit. It could be a criminal, uh, criminal copyright violation. I really doubt prosecutors have come to a lot of, uh, you know, come to vindicate the, uh, through criminal prosecutions a lot of copyright violations um, of this kind of artistic expression. Probably not a big deal as a practical matter, but it does, um, but it could undermine that kind of prosecution. Um, again, if you're barring the defendant's artistic expression. Um, so, that, so that's one version, really strong version to just kind of bar all this evidence altogether. All California has actually passed a law right, that uh, basically beefs up what the evidence aficionados know is rule 403. If there's some relevant evidence, but it has some prejudicial effect, meaning roughly that it's likely to be misused by the jury somehow. Right? So it has some value, it is, it is relevant to something in the case, but it's likely to be really uh, misused or prejudicial or uh, evoke biases um, by, the, by the jury or the decision maker. Then the judge can keep out that evidence because it's more likely to do more harm than good in effect. And the California rule, which again takes effect next year, it was passed this fall, signed by the governor this fall, um, basically says that while you're doing that kind of balancing test, is it more prejudicial and more harmful than the good it does as relevant evidence? Um, it just directs judges specifically um, to be, make sure that when you're thinking about that undue prejudice or that bad effect, um, that, it's, um, that you're treating the expression of the evidence of the defendant's uh, propensity for violence or the general criminal disposition as well as the possibility that it explicitly injects racial bias into the proceedings. Basically just reminding judges or telling judges specifically to think about the misuse of the evidence in this particular way and the kind of racial bias specifically that it might be evoking. It's maybe the weakest of these various proposals, but it's also um, it's probably worth reminding judges or saying to judges and making judges explicitly think about these concerns. It wouldn't be unheard of for judges to uh, ignore that consideration or give it little weight uh, when a party just argued that they should be aware of the say the racial bias that the, that the evidence might, um, might, might be put to or the effect that it might have. Oh, so it's a weaker limitation on this kind of evidence, much weaker than the just prohibition, um, but it's a, uh, uh, it's a somewhat stronger rule, probably, and uh, uh, it might have some effect, more so than the rule that we have now, which has open 
rap lyrics and other artistic expression to be admitted in, in a lot of criminal cases in a lot of states. The third proposal and the federal, uh, the federal model, the New York rule, or the New York proposal is about the same, so I'll just describe this one, would add an additional rule to the evidence rules that basically is a kind of supercharged version of that balancing test um, that um, just gives judges pretty specific instructions on what they should be considering before they introduce artistic expression and then puts, I would say, sort of a thumb on the scale of not introducing this kind of evidence, right? So it roughly says um, that when the government wants to use this kind of evidence in a criminal case, when a prosecutor wants to use it, they have to prove to the judge by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant intended the literal meaning of that statement that they make, which I think should be a hard burden for prosecutors to meet. Um, if the defendant intended the literal meaning of what the lyrics or the artistic expression are, and that the creative expression refers to the specific facts of the crime alleged, not just a general desire to murder or to do any number of things, um, um, and that it has distinct probative value, meaning it's kind of the best evidence available out there to prove this particular point that it's proving. If you have other evidence, you shouldn't be turning to this evidence. This is a, just a stronger rule that I think, if judges took it seriously, appellate courts made them take it seriously, it would do a lot of work toward keeping out this, uh, this uh, rap lyrics in many of the cases in which it's previously been admitted and may, may be admitted soon in Atlanta prosecutions and, and otherwise. So I worry a little bit about the strong version of the New Jersey bill, if that passes, that it just pro prohibits this kind of evidence. It's possible that there are uses to this kind of evidence that there are always sort of, sort of unintended effects that are hard to see when you're drafting something this blanket and strong and um, without exceptions. Um, but it's clearly the strongest rule and uh, the federal rule is a close second. Unfortunately, I would predict that the federal rule is, doesn't have any hope. This current Congress or the Congress that we're about to have in, in, in three months. But again, New York has it's proposed roughly the same rule the New York Senate has already passed it. Maybe there's some hope of the New York Assembly uh, enacting it. I can't predict New York politics, but I think I'll stop there and let my colleagues talk. By the way, he was in within his time. I was just giving him uh, friendly warnings. Thank you, Professor. Um, our next panelist is Ms. Molly Conger. She is a journalist based right here in Charlottesville, and her work involves investigative reporting on white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other hate groups in the United States. As you can imagine, she has been very involved in the city's response to the 2017 Unite the Right rally. You can follow Molly at Socialist Dog Mom to stay connected to her and her work. She will be discussing some of the nuances associated with regulating free speech. Molly, thank you for being here, and thank you for your advocacy. Thank you. Am I close enough to the microphone? These people all talk for a living. I, I listen for a living, so this is unusual for me. Uh, so when Anne first told me about this event, you know, the book, the idea of finding a legislative solution to the problem of using rap lyrics against defendants in court, you know, my first thought was, how on earth are they going to define rap? Right? And I'm thinking of like, how is my legislator? I'm thinking of like a Cree Deeds or a Tim Kaine going to sit down at his desk and, you know, proffer a concrete legal definition of what hip hop is. You know, it's it's a funny mental image, right? You know, thinking about these stuffy old men. You know, you know, sitting down and 
defining for the law. What is rap? What is art? What is music? Um, and you know, maybe a literature professor or an ethnomusicologist or someone here can can answer that. But the answer here is they didn't. They did not sit down and define what rap is. You know, I, I guess I didn't realize he was going to go through the text of all the bills first. But you know, I, I pulled up the languages from these bills, and you know, the stated intention is to limit the use of a predominantly black form of expression to make white jurors see a black defendant in a certain light. But the law defines what's being limited as just creative or artistic expression. Uh, and the language is really broad um, from the federal bill, which hasn't passed, but, you know, quote, the expression or application of creativity or imagination in the production or arrangement of forms, sounds, words, movements, or symbols, including music, dance, performance art, visual art, poetry, literature, film, and other such objects or media. So anything. Any, and literally anything. You could say anything was performance art or was, you know, spoken word poetry. Um, so, you know, sitting here in a room full of law professors, I'm hesitant to make a pronouncement about a law, but, you know, my reading of these bills is that they can't do anything. Or if they were to do anything, it would be too much. Um, you know, it starts off saying, you know, creative or artistic expression is inadmissible. Okay, that's something, right? But then there's this long list of accepts, you know, except if the material has probative value, except if the expression addresses a matter of factual dispute, except if it refers to the specific facts of the crime. You know, it's uh, it's sort of like the, the recapitulation at the end of a sonata, right? That adding this to the end of the rules of evidence is just playing again some of the notes of the piece. These are already the rules. Judges should already be doing this. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's not probative, it wasn't evidence to begin with. Um, so a judge who's inclined to allow bad evidence, whose nature would tend to negatively prejudice the jury, is going to keep doing that. He's, he's already doing that. They're already doing that everywhere. Uh, so we're trying to find a race-blind solution to a narrowly tailored manifestation of a much bigger problem. And there's no race-blind solution to racism. Um, you know, the criminalization of young black men doesn't start on the exhibit list. It starts with the school resource officer. Like long before you get to court, that's already happened. Uh, you know, so drawing from some of the examples from the book, you know, you see prosecutors playing rap videos to get a gang enhancement, um, using the presence of people in the background of the video who happen to be in the gang database to prove that the defendant also belongs in the gang database. Um, the problem here isn't the music video, although the, the prosecutor may well have chosen that particular piece of evidence to prove that point over some other equally tenuous piece of evidence because he understands the implications that it will conjure. He could have just picked something else. Um, young men of color tend to end up tagged in these gang databases um, just for knowing other black people, right? Because anyone who's ever had contact with a police officer in that neighborhood could end up in that database. And if you know him, if he's your brother, if he's your neighbor, you're in that database too. Um, it's, it's pure fiction cooked up to make it easier to criminalize a particular community. Um, and you can try to change the rules of Calvin Ball, but you can't win a rigged game. The problem is the database. Um, now, of course, my, my second thought when Ann told me about the event was, you know, I, when I read the text of these laws, is what else is going to end up excluded? If this works, if this excludes this kind of evidence, what else gets excluded? Because um, my area of expertise, obviously, you probably tell, um, is not rap music. Uh, <laughs> it's Nazis. Uh, and not the historical kind, not members of the German National Socialist Party of the 30s and 40s, um, but American neo-Nazis. Uh, and so for the last five years, I've been carefully chronicling all of the legal fallout of the Unite the Right rally. And so there were a number of trials. You know, I think everyone remembers specifically when James Alex Fields was convicted criminally. He was tried um, both by the state and the federal government. Uh, but there was also a, a significant civil case that just wrapped up actually this time last year. Um, sorry. Uh, so in both the civil and criminal cases, there was an 
avalanche of evidence, more than you usually have, especially in that civil case. You don't usually have access to all of the conspirators' private communications with each other over the course of months while they planned the conspiracy. So it was quite lucky. Um, you know, of course, in the Fields case, there was a lot of physical evidence, right? We had expert witnesses testify to the swabs they took from the cracked windshield of pieces of blood and tissue that the DNA matched to the victims. You know, we had x-rays of broken bones, photographs of blood and bruises and casts and surgical scars and tearful testimony about physical and emotional trauma. You know, a man who, <coughs> a man who could never pick up his child again because his shoulder is permanently damaged. Um, as a scar you see in the mirror that brings back flashbacks every day. Um, but whether he physically committed that act, whether he was the driver of the car, whether he hit those people, whether those people were hurt, those were never up for dispute. That was not a factual matter that anyone was disputing in that courtroom, not even his defense attorney. Um, the question was intent. And the evidence that proved that intent was means. His lawyer fought hard to keep means out of that courtroom. Um, and you could argue that a meme is a form of artistic expression. It's not high art. But it's art, right? You made it. It's, it's um, words and images for creative purpose. Um, and so specifically, the, the two memes that ended up really sealing the first-degree murder charge, um, first-degree murder conviction, um, was a photo that he posted on Instagram twice, um, a photo of a car ramming into a crowd of people. Um, it's easy to find if you want to find it. It's not necessary, but it looks eerily like the photographs of what he actually did. It's, it's a dark gray car running through a crowd of people. And it's captioned, you have the right to protest, but I'm late for work. That looks like intent to me, right? That looks like forethought. Uh, the second meme was something that he texted to his mother the day before. So on August 11th, 2017, his mother texted, you know, she knew he was driving here from Ohio. And she just said, you know, like a mother would, she said, be careful, be careful. And he texted back, we're not the ones who need to be careful. And he attached a meme to the text, and it was a picture of Adolf Hitler. And underneath his face, it just said, soon. The implication being, you know, soon I will do what Hitler did. Soon I will enact, you know, violence against minorities. Um, and so the circuit, sorry, the circuit court judge admitted it over the defense objection, and they that was one of their issues on appeal, and the um, State Court of Appeals upheld that uh, as probative of his state of mind. Um, so in, you know, in his state trial, the scope of evidence they felt they needed to get that first-degree murder conviction was pretty limited. They just needed those two memes to say, like, he was planning this. This was something he thought about. This wasn't an accident. This was motivated by a specific hatred, and he obviously thought about it beforehand. Uh, but in that civil case, the Sines v. Kessler civil case against all of the organizers of the event, so not just Fields, but all of the individuals and groups that came together and planned this event, um, they used a lot more means in that because they weren't just trying to prove the overt act. So to prove um, a, a civil conspiracy to do you know, racial and ethnic intimidation, you're not just looking at the overt act. You're not look, just looking at the specific acts of violence committed by individual people at this rally. You're looking at all of these conspirators and their motivation leading up to that, right? Because in a, in a conspiracy, you guys are law students, you know. So in a conspiracy, you don't have to be the one behind the wheel of the car. You were just part of that planning for the event where that happened as a, you know, a reasonable consequence of the thing you planned. Um, and so again, luckily for these plaintiff's attorneys, they had months of communications. They had a whole Discord mm -hmm. server where thousands of guys were talking about how they were totally going to come do great hate crimes together. Um, and so among the memes introduced, and I won't get into all of them because we'll be here all night, it was you know, three-week trial, a lot of memes. Um, uh, Marine Sergeant Michael Chesney, posting under the pseudonym Tyrone, 
Um, a month before the rally, he posted a meme depicting a large combine, like a big piece of farm equipment, captioned, introducing John Deere's multi-lane protester digester. And he added his comment, sure would be nice. And that's a joke, right? Nobody's driving a combine down the streets of Charlottesville. Nobody's hitting anybody with farm equipment. We know that. That's a joke. Um, but in that same conversation, he was asking specific questions about, you know, several, state, several states have passed laws um, releasing drivers from liability if they hit people with their cars who have entered the street as part of a protest. And so he was asking if Virginia was one of those states. So what kind of legal liability would I be exposing myself to if I hit someone with a car? So, you know, asking a question about the specific facts of the law, that's innocent enough. Posting a meme, that's just a joke. Those two things together form a pretty dark picture about the kind of intent that was being communicated in this space. Um, and so in, in another discussion about what sorts of tools or weapons would be legal to carry, again, reasonable questions. What's legal for me to do in this place I've never been? Um, they were discussing sharpening their flagpole points so you could disguise a weapon as just a prop, like I'm just carrying this American flag, but actually it's a knife. Um, and so one user replied, you know, impaling people is always the best option, TBH, which is hyperbolic. That's a joke. He's not actually talking about physically impaling someone all the way through. And then the meme he attached was a picture of um, a field full of dead bodies impaled on poles. That's hyperbolic. No one's doing that. Those things together with the fact that people did actually sharpen their flagpoles and use them to stab people is indicative of some kind of conspiratorial intent to do that. Um, and, you know, this this just a joke. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. It bears some deconstructing, right? It's not flippant. It's not, that's not just something people toss off. It's intentional. Um, so the actual text of the Daily Stormer style guide was introduced as evidence in the science trial. So the, the Daily Stormer is a Nazi propaganda blog. Um, and these guidelines were written by the, the site's owner, Andrew Anglin, who's missing. He's in hiding. Um, but he wrote these instructions for contributors to his website. You know, it's, it's common for a publication to have a style guide that contributors follow. But this style guide was about how to most impactfully communicate violent intent without running afoul of the law, right? So this, this section, the, the header of the section is lulls, right? L-U-L-Z, doing it for the lulls. The tone of the site should be light, most people are not comfortable with material that comes across as vitriolic, raging, or non-ironic hatred. The unindoctrinated should not be able to tell if we are joking or not. There should be a conscious awareness of mocking stereotypes of hateful racists. I usually think of this as self-deprecating humor. I'm a racist making fun of stereotypes of racists because I don't take myself super seriously. This is obviously a ploy, and I do actually want to gas the anti-Semitic slurs. So he's saying, like, this is how I want you to write. I want you to stay just on the side of what's legal, but communicate really vitriolic violence, because we do actually want to do genocide, and we're, we're working towards that together. You know, it's a, it's a joke. It's just memes. It's for the lulls. It creates plausible deniability and gently eases the reader into becoming more comfortable with extreme ideas. And later in that same guide, England even says, it's illegal to promote violence, but, quote, at the same time, it's totally important to normalize the acceptance of violence as an eventuality and inevitability. You know, it almost reads like he read Sartre's essay on anti-Semitism and took those words of caution as advice. You know, there's problems, to, you know, criticism to be made of Sartre, but I think this, I come back to this essay a lot because it's still extremely relevant. I and mean, it's just this quick passage. Um, Never believe that anti-Semites are completely unaware of the absurdity of their replies. They know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge but they are amusing themselves for it is their adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly. Since he believes in words, the anti-Semite has the right to play, 
They even like to play with discourse, for by giving ridiculous reasons, they discredit the seriousness of their interlocutors. They delight in acting in bad faith, since they do not seek to persuade by sound argument, but to intimidate and disconcert. So when, you know, when somebody says, you know, you debate me, bro, they don't want to debate. This is not a dialogue. This is a power struggle. Um, so Eric and I actually had a, a bit of a spirited conversation last night at dinner. You know, I think we have a fundamentally different approach to this topic, right, for a variety of reasons. Um, but one of the examples I raised in that conversation about what kind of creative expression are we, are we going to end up limiting here was an example that's close to my heart because this man did threaten to murder me on a variety of occasions. <laughs> but uh, the case that actually came against him was, was unrelated to the many times he said he was going to put a gun in my vagina and rape me to death with it. Um, again, that's creative expression. That's, it's fun, right? It's just a joke. Uh, but he find that he didn't do that. What? Eric was clarifying. Oh no 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 no! The, 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 this podcast, this podcaster. Um, so in this this case, he was red flagged in California. Um, so in California, it's called a gun violence emergency protective order. So after he was publicly identified as the man who makes this podcast anonymously, prosecutors in Sacramento said, "I don't think this guy should have a gun." You know, we could have a debate about whether or not red flag orders are are helpful or a useful tool, but that's what happened, right? So um, under a pseudonym, this man and several of his friends produce a podcast that's, you know, it's part just shooting the shit and just making jokes, and it's part radio play. So it's performance art. They're, they're using pseudonyms, they're doing bits and voices and characters. They have recurring characters that they do these little skits. So it's not literal, right? Um, but as one of these little skits, sort of like an OJ's If I Did It, he's talking about how, you know, if you were to deface a synagogue, you shouldn't use spray adhesive because that can damage the building. And depending on the amount of damage you do to the building, this could become a felony. So if someone were going to do that, like, you know, if some guy who's not me did that, you should use tape, right? And so that's hypothetical. It's tongue in cheek. He's being silly. He's removing himself from it. He's playing a character. But unfortunately, there is surveillance footage of someone who looks a lot like him doing exactly that at a synagogue less than a mile from his mom's house. So it, this podcast is pretty good evidence that maybe the guy that defaced that synagogue was Andrew Casares. Um, sorry. So, you know, oops, I missed my spot. So, you know, over the course of that conversation, I asked Eric, if, is, is it truly your position then that if I taped up a sign about something innocuous, like a yard sale, I'm having a yard sale, and I tape up a sign in my neighborhood, but I accidentally damaged the building, is that fundamentally in the courtroom the same crime is doing the same damage to the building by taping up a flyer covered in swastikas and anti-Semitic slurs, and also that building is a synagogue. Is the victim of this crime the paint, or is the victim of this crime the congregants of that synagogue who are afraid for their lives, right? Um, if the speech itself is excluded, oh God, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, is, is the crime of burning a cross on someone's lawn, is the victim the grass? Or is the victim the person who lives in that house who is terrified? When the, if the speech is excluded, all you have is the property damage. You know, absent motive, absent the meaning of your actions, the meaning of your words, if you take all that out, all that's left is minor property damage. And that's hardly worth bringing to court. Um, and so to a free speech absolutist, to the person whose ideological commitment to absolute, unfettered, unrestricted speech in all forms, the answer is yes. Those things are the same right? Damaging the paint is damaging the paint. 
Um, but I don't think you can solve a problem whose cause is racism by enabling racism to proliferate without consequence. That's the paradox of tolerance, right? That tolerance without limits or logic does not dissolve intolerance, it strengthens it. It allows it to take hold and overpower those very tolerant people who looked the other way while they painted totenkopfs on their helmet and sharpened their flagpoles. Um, you know, in the end, American courts have always functioned as a tool to soothe white fears about blackness, as a socially acceptable tool of violence for controlling and suppressing black communities. I mean, that's the root of policing in America. That's the root of our courts. Uh, and that's a problem I don't have a solution for. You know, I, I just listen. I just take the notes. Uh, but trying to condense that problem down into something that's manageable enough to be addressed by tweaking the rules of evidence doesn't even begin to address the problem. By the time you're sitting in a courtroom on a motion in limine to suppress a particular piece of evidence, you've already been profiled, harassed, arrested, and charged. Your life is already ruined. You're already halfway to prison. Um, and most people forced into that position only go back to that courtroom one more time after arraignment, and it's for sentencing, because almost every case ends in a plea. People don't go to trial. Uh, most defendants don't even get as far as fighting to keep evidence out because they're never putting on any evidence. They're coerced, lied to, and terrified into taking pleas. Changing the rules of evidence doesn't change what a prosecutor is allowed to tell you he's going to tell the jury. He can lie to you. And they do lie to you. <laughs> That's their job. Um, and, you know, if by some miracle this legislation is, is passed in a form that genuinely can exclude in such a broad way, these kinds of evidence, which I am I'm skeptical that that's even possible because we already have rules that judges ignore every day. Um, what does it really prevent? How many of these cases exist in this perfect rhetorical vacuum where that that was the piece of evidence that tipped the scale? Not the entire culture of over-policing black communities, targeting young men of color who live, dress, and express themselves in a particular way, the prosecutors who overcharge those cases to scare you into taking a plea, the jurors who walk into a courtroom thinking, well, a cop would never lie to me. You know, free speech absolutism as a tool to dismantle white supremacist power structures is a fool's errand, and it falls quickly into the paradox of tolerance. Allowing all creative expression, just blanket, to go unchallenged, unquestioned, and to be exempt from scrutiny in the courts ends up where everything ends up in the legal system. Best intentions be damned. A system designed to protect and uphold whiteness is going to keep doing that. Okay, thank you. And uh, our last speaker is uh, Eden Heilman, who is the legal director of the Virginia uh, American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Eden, in that position, has engaged in a broad range of uh, litigation at the state and federal level, as well as in uh, administrative uh, proceedings uh, involving broad range of topics, including um, criminal justice, juvenile justice, prison reform, education, uh, disability rights, LGBTQ rights. And uh, 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 Ms. Heilman today will talk about the RAP Act. Perhaps you could uh, spell out what that stands for and uh, potential First Amendment concerns with uh, restricting artists' speech. Is this on? Is this on? Yes, okay. Y'all, I just got reading glasses, so forgive me if I'm like trying to figure out like the interplay of looking at you and using reading glasses. I'm like, this is weird. Okay. Um, first, thank you all very, very much, and thank you to um, the university for inviting me to speak on the panel today, um, and to enjoy or to join this incredible slate of co-presenters. I particularly want to um, 
uh, acknowledge Mac Phipps. I um, spent, before I moved to Virginia four years ago, I spent the last 20 years in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, it is <clears throat> not where I grew up, but it is what I consider to be my home. And um, I have followed Mac's case closely in the news. Um, he, A, is not lying about St. Tammany Parish. It's perhaps one of the most racist places uh, in, in Louisiana, still to this day. Um, and um, and I just am in awe of, of you and what you went through. And I just feel incredibly honored to be up here with you. And I, I just want to say I'm very grateful for that. Um, so in preparing for this panel today, um, we were asked by Anne to, um, or to address specific questions in the context of our roles and experiences. Um, and for me, in my role as the ACLU of Virginia Legal Director, um, one of the primary questions I was asked is, do these, these RAP acts, as, as uh, our professor um, friend described, provide the appropriate balance of the First Amendment values and the needs of criminal law enforcement? Um, and this was a really hard question for me to answer, and I will tell you why. Um, first, to be frank, I'm not particularly concerned about the needs of criminal law enforcement. <laughs> I just, frankly, don't care. Um, in our day-to-day -day work at the ACLU of Virginia, our priorities are, you know, first protecting First Amendment rights of Virginians, but also um, to shrink the criminal justice system and to end the system of mass incarceration in Virginia, um, which we know um, has oppressed thousands, if not, you know, millions of um, black Americans throughout um, its, its time. And so for me, it's really hard to think about valuing the needs of a system that has worked to oppress so many people um, and why that would have value and why we would need to think about that. So that was a hard, hard, hard cap to put on when thinking about this today. Um, but I do want to take a step back and walk through this a bit and think a little bit about um, and when I say RAP Act, I'm not just talking about one particular one. I'm talking about the kind of collection and idea of RAP Acts that, um, that we um, discussed a little bit earlier um, and the concept of these, you know, and, and where they stand. <clears throat> um, so first, I, you know, I want to start with just the premise of this, which is that musical expression and other works of art are a form of free speech that are protected by the First Amendment, right? Um, I think we can probably agree in various forms of what that might look like, and, and Molly and I might have a difference of opinion as to what, what is protected works of art and what isn't. Um, and I think that there is probably a lot of room for argument there. I probably would argue that a meme is not a protected work of art. Um, I, you know, I think that, that there is a lot of, a lot of gray area there, and I think good lawyering um, plays a role in this as to arguing what is and what isn't. Um, I would say that you know, music is very clearly a protected form of art. Um, so to me, that wouldn't be a question. Um, and what Mr. Phipps went through to me would not be a question. But I do think that that um, is something that that would be heavily lawyered in this issue. Um, in that regard, something like these, you know, these rap acts are a welcome step to me in the right direction in protecting free speech. Do they solve all of the problems? No, they don't. Um, are they one small step in the right direction? Yes. Um, and I would encourage any state to look at potentially making this small step. Anytime a judge would have to sit, sit there and buy, you know, most of these acts um, set a metric of by clear and convincing evidence. They have to kind of take the jury out of the room and look at this particular um, uh, set of circumstances um, and take into consideration and make a finding um, on the record of this particular issue. I think it's only going to benefit to have this on the record. Right. And um, so is it a, is it a cure all? Is it a panacea for all of the woes of our very racist justice system? Absolutely not. Is it a small step in the right direction? 
I would arguably say, of course it is. Um, you know, of course, we have seen way too many cases where prosecutors have sought to introduce evidence from art depicting violence um, and criminal activity in order to prove that the artist themselves is violent or criminal. Um, I am originally from Gainesville, Florida, before I moved to New Orleans. And just this past Friday, a um, rapper from Jacksonville, which is right near Gainesville, um, Spina Benz, um, was found not guilty by a jury um, after um, the prosecutor tried to use his lyrics against him um, to convict him of possession of a gun charge. Um, this was actually one of the most absurd cases of this I've ever heard of. Um, so he, w uh, you know, has a felony conviction. And so they were trying to charge him with a felon, felony conviction, um, uh, uh, felony in possession of a gun conviction. And they used a song of his where he, the lyric was, my Glock costs $300. Um, and that was the lyric that they used to try and prove that the, that the, that the gun purchased by his girlfriend was in fact his. Um, that was the grounds for the lyric. They also tried to use the timing of the song's release because the song's release date was just weeks after the weapon was purchased by his girlfriend. And so the timing of the release of the song and the song lyric, My Glock Cost $300, was allowed to be admitted as evidence in his case um, and then allowed to be used against him. And fortunately, the jury saw through this BS um, and found him not guilty, um, even though there was no other evidence, basically, there, like the, you know, in terms of physical evidence that the gun was in his possession. Um, and um, and again, an example that is truly absurd, but uh, a, a classic example of trying to use um, his music to criminalize uh, to criminalize him for that. Um, Artist identity has a large impact on how artistic works are perceived. I think, you know, we obviously know that black artists um, and artists with other marginalized identities are especially likely to have their works perceived as um, as uh, criminal. Um, we actually see this, although we see this, I think, mo mostly in the context of black artists in, in rap music. Um, we also see this in other contexts, too. Um, so, for example, art depicting gay relationships or um, relationships of transgender um, characters is more likely to be perceived as sexually explicit than art that is depicted with the exact same content if it is straight and cisgender characters. Um, so this isn't just I mean, although, I, like I said, I think this is highly, highly frequently applied against black um, black uh, artists and particularly rap music, I do think we see it in other marginalized communities as well. And I think there's a reason for that. Again, we know that um, that any any art that challenges power or that challenges kind of the heteronormative or white power structures are going to be perceived as threats. And that is frequently why you'll see some of this, this counter um, to that. Um, the sad thing about that in particular is that those, I think, probably are some of the most valuable art that there is in the universe, right? We know that um, the art of marginalized groups, um, you know, seeks to speak truth to power. Um, it tells stories of survival and struggle and triumph and family and all these very important things. And yet that's um, the very art that, that that's trying to be to be quashed. Um, and that anything that chills these, per these perspectives um, threatens to undermine free expression and really um, runs the risk of threatening our inclusive democracy as much as possible. So um, because these uh, especially valuable areas of speech are among those most likely to be chilled by criminal prosecutions, I, uh, you know, it's our position, I think, that, the, that these RAP Act type, type laws are um, a welcome rebalancing of, of, um, of the threat to free speech that artists can face when they produce 
art that can be perceived as a threat to power. Um, another one of the questions that was asked of the organizers is, is there a way to distinguish between hip hop lyrics and racist lyrics? Um, which is, I think, what um, Molly was, was getting at. I would, I'm not going to go into a great detail here because I think we're, we're running out of time and I do want to leave a lot of time for the, the audience to ask questions. But I would argue here that the law is not an appropriate place to make determinations about what does and doesn't count as racist. I think this is a very dangerous, slippery slope. And I think we're seeing this currently um, right now, even in our, in our current state government. Um, we've seen efforts right now in Virginia and elsewhere across the country to, for example, to stop teachers from teaching truth about America's history under the concept of divisive concepts. Um, and that is, quote unquote, an effort to not be racist. Um, I mean, the reality of it is, is that if you don't trust the people who are in power in government, you're not going to trust how they define racist speech. And so if you involve the law in defining racist speech, you're not going to like the answer depending on who's in power in government. And so I would argue that the law is the wrong place to have that debate. Um, and um, so that would be how I would answer that question. Um, but but I, I wanna, again, end there so that we have time for questions um, and open it up. Oh, no, I'm good. I will, I will end it there and open it up for others to ask questions. Thank you very much.